Hi, this is Dr. MJ coming to you from beautiful Boston, Massachusetts. This is the Women in Dentistry podcast where we feature women in dentistry making waves and leading the industry through the next decade. I am your host, Dr. Mary Jane Hanlon, a former dental assistant, dental hygienist, and now dentist. I'm very pleased to introduce you today to Ms. Noelle Paschke. Noelle is a dental hygiene graduate from the University of Maryland Dental School. She's a former faculty at her alma mater where she received the Dental Hygiene Teacher of the Year Award. She served as the clinical board examiner for the then Northeast Regional Board for 22 years. In clinical practice, she has been in general practice, perio, and hospital dental hygiene at the John Hopkins Medical School where she was also appointed to the medical school faculty. Noelle has led corporate education teams in North America as manager of education with Dentsply, Cavitron, senior manager for clinical education with Philips Sonicare, and director of education with Acteon, manufacturers of Magnento and Piezo Ultrasonics, respectively. Her passion is teaching ultrasonics. She loves to help clinicians gain clarity, confidence, and clinical excellence. Noelle owns Ultrasonics Plus, focused on education and hands-on ultrasonic programs. She resides in Missoula, Montana with her husband, Richard, an ultrasonics engineer, and their dog, Rudy. She enjoys many outdoor activities, including whitewater rafting in the summer and dog sledding in the winter. It is now my pleasure to bring you to my interview with Noelle Paschke. Well, I am so excited to have you on the show today. I know you and I have seen each other in several meetings over the last couple of years, and where we've never really had a chance to chat. I'm thrilled to have you on the show, and I'm thrilled to have you share with our audience, you know, your entree into the world of dentistry and how long you've been here and what kind of things that you've done. Well, I'm just so excited to be here with you today, and I think that I'm the luckiest dental hygienist in the entire universe, uh, having had a great career, and I was first introduced to dentistry by my general dentist, and um, I think we have a few things in common, Dr. Hanlon. Actually, uh, so I started as a dental assistant. And so I started as a dental assistant um, at the age of 14 and working in my general dentist. Uh, I first met him when I was five and uh, he invited me to work in his practice after school when I was in high school. And my, my job was instrument sterilization. And I learned such incredible, valuable lessons from Dr. Magaziner. I mean, a phenomenal work ethic. And that was my entree into, so I, sometimes I feel like I've just, um, teeth and gums have always been a part of who I am. And uh, it's been a wonderful career in, uh, in dentistry. Awesome, awesome. So where did you, where was that practice and where did you go to hygiene school? So the practice uh, was in Baltimore, Maryland, and I went to dental hygiene school at the University of Maryland. And, and it wasn't until like the very last second that I enrolled. Um, and, and I think part of it is you know, having, as women, I think having mentors, having people that we look up to, and I absolutely adored the dental hygienist in Dr. Magaziner's practice. And I wanted to be Susie. Susie was like everything. She was like kind of like an ah kind of experience. And I mean, I wanted to have my hair cut like Susie and I wanted to um, smell like her, <laughs> like everything about it. And it was really a matter of just how she interacted with patients. And uh, so it was a, uh, I thought, geez, you know, I think I want to do I had, Actually, I was working in a life insurance company as uh, an underwriter secretary taking stenography and typing all day. It really wasn't my life calling to do that. And so it, it was really the very last week in August I even applied to and got into school. So it was uh, wow. right, at the, right, right at the last second. So you, you applied in August and got in for September? Yeah. So, you know, I look back at that and I'm thinking, what was with that? Like, what was the admission process back then? And so that wasn't dental hygiene school. That was the first two years, the two year prerequisites. So uh, at uh, University of Maryland, Baltimore County and did those prerequisites. But keeping in mind, too, that my background in high school, 
I did not have a strong science background. So it was really quite a struggle for me to, to keep up, but just kept putting one foot in front of the other and taking one class after the other and getting into study groups and being very determined that I knew I wanted to be a dental hygienist. And so whatever it was gonna take for me to do that, but not realizing until my junior year when I was actually in dental hygiene school that I actually had been dealing with some handicaps to learning. So that was very revealing along the way as well, but it's actually turned out to be a good thing. At the time, it made so much sense. So actually what I'm talking about, I, I didn't realize I was dyslexic until I was a junior in dental hygiene school. And it explained, you too? Oh my yeah. gosh. And it wasn't until I was much older when I recognized how many times I flipped numbers and letters. Yes, yes, I do the same thing. Exactly, yeah. And yeah. that it, it's a huge thing. And I didn't know what it was for the longest time. It wasn't diagnosable way back then. So yeah, my mother had it as well. And so I don't know, it's not genetic, I don't think, but I guess, you know, there's a wiring in the brain that occurs. There's something about that though. Do you know that Leonardo da Vinci could actually, every single one of his notes was upside down and backwards. And so when I learned dental hygiene, and I don't know if they did this with you. Did you learn to write your, your name upside down and backwards in a mirror? No, I did not. So that's how they taught us to learn to use our mirror in the mouth, was they made us learn how our brain worked so that we could write our name upside down in a mirror so that when we looked in the mirror, everything would be in the right location. What a great, I mean, that's developing new neural pathways in order to do that. What a brilliant teaching concept to do that. I actually did things like taking uh, foam, pink foam hair curlers and doing the, like doing my hair and rolling in the mirror and looking in the mirror. For me, that was not, my mother was a hairdresser and I worked in her beauty salon from very early age, either doing scalp massages or washing towels or folding towels or whatever. But I found training my brain to use indirect vision and the, the psychomotor part of turning my fingers really, really helped considerably. But it wasn't until I was in junior clinic one day and uh, we had one of our instructors, we referred to her as the angel of mercy. <laughs> you knew you were going to have a great day when you had Miss Shottle because she just made everything, even the worst day, okay. And all of my heart tissue charting was flipped. And she was very kind and she said, you know, I'm going to step away and if you'd like to review your heart tissue charting and I'll come back in about 10 minutes. And it was just amazing. I mean, it was a mirror image. And so, but I think because of that, it's really been a gift to be able to work with other people to dissect very complex concepts into smaller pieces, breaking it down and making it attainable for learners. And so it's actually, you know, at the time, maybe it didn't seem like a gift. It actually has been a gift over, over my entire career. Amazing. Amazing. And I think that we develop coping mechanisms, don't we? Oh, absolutely. I have developed a way to double check myself on all things because mm -hmm. I do know it's, it, it happens on a regular basis. I, I was just noticing it um, earlier today. I said, oh, isn't that funny? I wrote the whole word backwards. <laughs> but my whole mind works like that on a regular basis. So I have to be very conscious of that. But I do think that no matter what, we can overcome these things, right? We just have to figure out the tools. It's that compensatory type of behaviors. And then one of the things I remember thinking was that Albert Einstein was dyslexic. So it's not a matter of stupidity. It's a matter of learning new ways to do things in order to process information. And so it's, it's like I said, it's, it's been a gift. It's been actually a gift. That's amazing. So are you doing clinical hygiene still to this day? No, I am not. So uh, when I moved to Montana from Maryland and at the time I had been involved with corporate dentistry for a number of years and then decided to not get my license here in Montana. So no, I have not, but I do go back to Maryland fairly frequently. And uh, so I still get my, my fix for clinical because I absolutely, I love the patient interaction, but not currently here in Montana. And are you teaching at all on the speaker circuit at, at doing different things? 
I am. So it's been really awesome. So I've had uh, over the last 20 years, I've been a part of three international dental companies and um, all three very different uh, experiences. Uh, the first was Densply and that was incredible. I mean, just a, a phenomenal organization and being a U.S. based company, that's where I cut my corporate teeth. And then from there on to Philips and Philips is based in, in the Netherlands. And so having that Dutch culture and uh, I feel, feel like it's in some ways my brain was rewired into the Dutch business culture which is very different from the American culture and then most recently uh, last year uh, and prior four years working for Acteon which is a French company and then learning the business culture within that structure and all three were very different so the teaching all of those roles had been related to education and clinical education for the companies and writing curriculum presenting to faculty to students and then uh, this past year started my own company ultrasonics plus and uh, focusing on the ultrasonic aspects both technologies with magneto and piezo and being on the lecture circuit and speaking to clinicians practicing clinicians but i still have that soft spot in my heart working with students having been on the faculty at the university of maryland and working with students as well so it's always been related the combination of the two of academics as well as the clinical side uh, even my initial position that I had, I was a hospital hygienist at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. And so there was a clinical component to it, but then there was also the teaching part. And, you know, back in the day, you know, in the, in the late 1970s, we didn't talk about oral systemic link, but firsthand I got to see the impact of that oral systemic link related to bone marrow transplant patients and, you know, other patients. And so a lot of opportunities to share information and knowledge really from, from the get-go. So, you know, let's go back to your corporate, you know, that's not an experience. And, and like I shared with you before we started the, the show today, it, you know, this is, this is an avenue that's available, right, for, you know, hygienists, dentists, assistants that may not want to do clinical hygiene anymore, but want a more broad experience and a more, you know, a business-like experience with a company. So tell us a little bit how you got involved in that and, you know, share with the audience, you know, maybe some tips to help them if that's something that they're interested in. Absolutely. So the model, the business model of having a clinician, whether it's a dentist or a hygienist, in some cases a dental assistant, having someone that has a broad base of the clinical knowledge is definitely something that's very helpful. The other part of it, and the way that I got started was uh, with Densply, they asked me to do an updated annotated bibliography related to ultrasonics. And so I did that back to 1954 and at the time it was to 1994 and literally read every single paper and categorized it and did this exhaustive annotated bibliography. So the good side is that the company got that product summarized for them, but I also then had the knowledge having collected all that knowledge and being able to then have that as a baseline. So I would say that if someone's interested in working in the corporate arena, first and foremost is that you've got to be authentic about it in that it should be a company that whose products that you love. And because you can't fake it, you know, you, you just, it's not, it's just not possible to fake it. The next part of that equation then is to look at the company. I mentioned there were three companies, one U.S., one being a Dutch company and one being a French company, is to do your homework on where the mothership is located. Because wherever the mothership is located, that's going to trickle down through the entire organization. And as, as best you can from speaking to people in the company, what their company culture is. And what I mean by that is that is the company culture is it dominated more by the marketing departments or is it dominated more by the sales organization so what's the major driver and that will influence how a dental professional functions within that company and again all three of the companies that I worked for had different slightly different models of uh, where they put their emphasis whether it was on the sales side or the marketing side and then within the marketing side and looking at where does education fit within that company and there are some companies that have more robust interest in utilizing evidence-based research in making their decisions for clinicals and in making marketing statements so it really you've got to have a cultural fit as well 
because in some ways you sell your soul. I mean, you, you're working, you will never work as hard as you work when you're in a corporate position. I mean, it's, it is a 24 seven type of uh, employment, I would say endeavor, but it was fun. It was exciting, met incredible people and it gives you the opportunity. You know, for me, it gave me the opportunity to travel globally and I would say travel not so much to say oh gee where's the next resort that I'm going to it's not about that but it's engaging with other cultures and people and how business is done and the exchange that intellectual exchange of ideas and say hmm I never thought of it that way maybe I should consider thinking of it this way or I'll give you an example so I was um, tasked with uh, developing a, the strategic plan for Philipsonicare for the Asian market and I really needed to dig down and look at what was the healthcare delivery system so you know what how did that work before i could get into the dental part and the education part it was like what's the landscape you know where where are we even operating because i sometimes i think for americans in particular we think well we've got you know this way of doing things and therefore the rest of the world should follow suit well not necessarily so so it opened a lot of uh, say doors and back to the brain again a lot of doors in my mind of you know maybe there's a different way of doing things what if we do this instead of that so it, it was just really um, a phenomenal experience i'm so thrilled that i got to work for three different international companies you know interesting insight because you touched on something that i think is really important in two things actually one is a culture of not only, you know, a business or an organization that you're involved with, but the practice you might be working in, right? So if the practice does not support what your expectations are, it is not worth staying longer than you think is necessary because it just is not a good working environment. I totally agree with you. And I think there are going to be two buzzwords we're going to be seeing in our industry related to that, that, you know, with the impact of COVID and then people deciding to stay in clinical, leave clinical or whatever they're doing is they're really examining, you know, is this where I want to be? Is this this culture that I want to be a part of? And those that are going to be successful, I think will have two things. One will be safety. And I don't mean safety from puncture of needles, but I mean like more like emotional safety in that practice to be able to speak up, to have a voice, to sit, go to the doctor and say, you know, and be solution oriented, not problem focused, but coming with a solution. And so having that safety, but the other part is resilience. It's that, okay, when we do have a setback, how are we going to overcome it? Maybe the bounce back factor and to say, okay, let me identify the problem. Okay, well, let me examine three alternatives and solutions and then say, well, gee, maybe I need to rest a moment before I then take the next step. But I think those that are going to be successful in this COVID post COVID environment is going to be the or will be the private practices or the practices, clinical practices that have those two elements of safety and the resilience. And, um, and it'll be very exciting. I think there'll be some incredibly wonderful thriving practices because of it. I agree with you. And I think that AI is, is just on the cusp of taking off and that that's going to impact our practice daily life every single day moving forward. Um, the other thing I noticed too, is that, you know, you hit right on the, the fact that we, we need to be resilient and bounce back. But if you're still not in the right culture, and if you still find that you're hitting that wall of resistance, you know, I keep saying that what you resist persists, right? So mm -hmm. don't resist, move on because- Yeah, and that's okay. And it is okay. It really is okay. And it's not necessarily a judgment against whatever the situation is. It's just not a match. And, and I have been in a situation like that. I was a part of a practice where I had the greatest respect for the doctor, incredible clinician, lot, I mean, beautiful work we did not have a culture match. And um, as much as we both tried, because we did have really good communication with each other, and then it just came to a time of, you know what, it's just not a match for both of us. And she wished me well, I wished her well, and I still wish her well, but it just, the culture was just not a match. And so it's more of an observation of the situation and not a judgment of the situation. Right, right, very good. So are you retired at this point from everything else and, and just speaking on, with your new business? No, actually, I've been, 
<laughs> I just, I, sometimes I'm, I'm starting to laugh about this because I, there are days that I'm just incredibly busy. And so part of it is uh, the speaking part of it, which I really do love. And I'm still involved with my previous company. So for example, with Acteon, and then there are other companies um, that I'm involved with that if it's related to ultrasonics and they have, uh, they've already completed the sales process and um, have ultrasonics that they're the equipment that they're installing into the school, they'll hire me to come in to work with the faculty doing train the trainer, which is, and especially now where more and more dental schools are introducing piezo in addition to, or instead of magneto, but the faculty have not had that experience yet. I've got some like three top, very easy things to transition and then also give them information related to teaching then to students. So that's one aspect. And then the other aspect is I'm married to an ultrasonic engineer and we have an ultrasonic lab in our in our house here. And uh, like two geeks, we get together. And so there are some patent things that we're working on as well. So it's been, it's just been a blast. It's been so much fun. How exciting. How exciting. Now, how has COVID affects affected the the ultrasonic purchases and use during this time because i know we still are not allowing our students to use ultrasonics yet yes right and so a lot of it has to do with um, keeping up with what cdc is telling us and recommendations from ada as well and it really is centered all on the aerosol generation mm -hmm. and uh, what it comes down to is then the utilization of high volume evacuation and uh, the dental school in south carolina just recently published some research was on july 13th and publishing research looking at using two HVE systems in order to mitigate the aerosols. But there are some things, some new techniques that I'm advocating when I'm teaching related to call it going low and slow. So you can always turn the amplitude or the power down and in doing so you're going to decrease your aerosols. And there are some techniques that you can do to decrease those aerosols. So there are clinicians that are choosing to use ultrasonics and then there are others who are, are still not using ultrasonics, but it really, it goes around the, um, the aerosol management. One of the, I would say the pet peeves though that I have right now is that people do need to do their due diligence. It's like, you know, I see people making purchases for some products that uh, they don't need. They don't need, and they're they're not they're not evidence based. They're, they've not been scientifically proven, and so that's why I really like the quintessence article, the July article that I mentioned. That that is actually, I mean, it followed the process of good research, and I think though that that some have either we've gotten a little lazy about it and spoon fed a little bit too much, but I think we need to have an element of discernment before we make those purchases. And because I'm thinking, wow, some people are spending a ton of money and I'm thinking, are you really getting the peace of mind that you think that you're getting by purchasing this? So, um, you know, that that's an area of growth for us, I think as an entire profession and then you being in the academic community, I mean, isn't that what it's all about being faculty is that you're teaching people how to think and not think just for today, but think for tomorrow, think for five years from now and that thought process of how do we discern the information that's available to us? Because, I mean, we've got an information tsunami. So how do we discern that information and being able to go through that process of, of thinking and making really good clinical decisions? You know, if we circle back then around to your dental team, instead of having the the you know classic traditional hierarchical of, you know, well, the doctor will decide everything, which the final decision comes down to the doctor and the business owner and that practice owner, or if it's a DSO, the DSO, you know, whatever business model you're following, but there needs to be a voice given to everyone on the team to look at it from different perspectives so that the end decision maker can really make a good solid decision on what they're doing, not only for patient safety, but the but also the clinician safety. And then I also think about the business safety, the, the practice growth, and the practice health moving forward because if the practice isn't healthy and people don't have jobs then hey what have you gained right i know i know at the beginning of all of this i do know that you know faculty wanted this machine and that machine and finally we just had to say hold on yes you know we've got to do you know what we can with the hvac system we do understand that that's a huge issue you know, obviously got to get everybody trained on the N95 masks and set up all those protocols. 
And once you, once you get down what the new process is, it's not so bad. No, it's not. And there's other ways to do it cheaply, right? For example, if you have two high-speed evacuations, one can be used by the assistant and the other one can be used right next to the mouth to take any kind of aerosols that might be going up. So there's all sorts of ways that you can maneuver around this without costing a lot of money. And like you said, you know, people get, they like the bells and whistles and we love tools. That's, I think that's- We do. <laughs> we do, we like our- The little shiny stuff, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. We get drawn to that, but it's a lot of it is totally unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, concepts that we think related to power scaling as an example that, you know, we're gonna get in there, we're gonna bust it off, we're gonna blast it off. And it's like, so this low and slow, it's kind of like the difference between a microwave and a crock pot. And so with a low and slow, but one of the things that's necessary is that you have to use tips or inserts that are not worn. And I see an epidemic and I, this, I saw this, these made these observations prior to COVID is that there were practices where people were using equipment that had long, long, way long ago, given all of its very best that it could possibly give using worn equipment and then expecting to get stellar results. And so um, I actually had this experience when I was teaching at Maryland and there were days that some that the hygiene faculty would cover uh, dental students if uh, the perio hygienists were um, really inundated. And uh, one dental student in particular said, you know, I'm ready for a check. I said, great, sat down and, and every root surface was smooth. However, they all had these wonderful little bumps on each root surface. And I said, you know, tell me which tooth in the human anatomy would have a bump on it versus having a convexity uh, or concavity rather. And the dental student said, well, you know, the first one was, well, you know, I took dental anatomy three years ago and I said, I understand. I said, well, let's tie it all together. I said, let's take that knowledge and let's put today. And this was not in front of the patient, by the way, very much a believer of, you know, say, step into my office and we walk away, not in front of the patient, but it was burnished calculus. And I said, I am thrilled that this happened for you today because now we can spend the rest of the clinic on sharpening your instruments, getting tips that work, um, getting a technique so that you now know how to remove burnished calculus. But I think that the continuation of periodontal disease, sometimes, you know, we blame our patients for stuff. And I'm thinking, is it our equipment? Is it maybe that you know, the instruments, the scalers and the curettes are dull and or is it because you're using worn tips and inserts? So some of this is giving us an invitation to go back to the basics. It's not like some like woo kind of like new thing. I mean, this has been around since the beginning of dentistry and the beginning of this equipment being available to us. Uh, but um, so it, it's in some ways, it's rather refreshing if we just stop, pause, take a breath and say, OK, let's restart let's re-examine what we're doing and why we're doing it. And, and again, I'm perhaps being very Pollyannish about this and optimistic, but I think we're going to have better outcomes. I do too. I do too. I definitely think there have been so many silver linings in all of this and, and clearly paying attention to basic understanding of clinical procedures is just one that everybody has to say, okay, how do we manage this? You know, what can we do to, to diminish the, the amount of aerosol for everybody? Well, then everybody needs to go back to hand scaling. And that has been really not well received at my school because there's been this move to, away from hand scaling because obviously it's easier to use the Cavitron, right? But you and I both know as hygienists that, that you're never going to get all the calculus with a Cavitron. You can try. But there's nothing like going back and really, you know, doing the finishing with a hand scaler and making sure. Well, and I think also with the hand scaling aspects of it, that making sure, and again, not using dull instruments. I mean, I, again, having the clinical experience of teaching in an academic institution and then also um, going into private practices and helping them up, up their game with their, their techniques. You can't expect an instrument to scale unless it's sharp. And, you know, then I go back to, well, what's the root cause? Like, let's do a root cause analysis. Like, why aren't our instruments sharp? Well, now we have sharp and free instruments, which is, you know, great that that's available to us, but not everyone has those. And so, you know, why is it that people don't like to sharpen their instruments? And then also, I think some mis 
guided information related to power scaling, thinking that if you kind of like stick it in and swirl it around, that stuff's going to jump off. And, and no, it's very, it requires a very methodical, very methodical overlapping stroke, having patience with it. And again, I think setting those expectations on the clinical aspects that you can get a lot of your scaling done and biofilm disruption, decontamination done with a power scaler, but certainly having those sharp hand instruments. And I, I guess must be one of those like crazy weirdo clinicians that I love instrument sharpening. I mean, I think I love it is because I love the benefit of it. I love it that if they're sharp, my wrist isn't going to hurt, that I'm going to actually be able to see, uh, take care of the patient and not, um, not, it's, I'm not going to have to dig, so it's not going to hurt. It's not, I mean, so there are so many benefits to doing that, but it's, uh, you know, it's exciting for, I know I could imagine for you being in that dental school environment to have that first touch point to give them the why behind the, why they're doing certain things and, and then why not? You know, why aren't you doing this versus that goes back to discernment. What am I going to do with the information that I have? Right. I find that that was the biggest cause of fear that I noticed right from the very beginning with COVID is the lack of knowledge absolutely increased the amount of fear. And so I think across the board that I've really solidified my belief in as much knowledge as possible. And if you don't have it, you got to go get it because if you don't have it, then that means that you are going to misunderstand or you are going to be somewhat pausing to do things that you really need to do. Absolutely. So and, and the word fear, I think, is something that it can be, you know, can be a little speed bump for some people. Other people, it is an absolute huge mountain. And one of my favorite books is uh, Who Moved My Cheese? And there's a line in that book, you know, what would you do if you were not afraid? And I'm thinking, wow, what a great question, because fear can really trip people up significantly. And then they just don't even go down the path because of that, you know, the fear factor. I, I mean, I, I refer to it in my presentations as the F word and not in the, the other word. But I mean, you know, being, you know, fear and identifying that, you know, what's what's the worst that's going to happen? And I think in some ways that lessons learned from the dyslexics, you know, aspect of failure is actually not a terrible thing and my you know my engineer husband he's thrilled when things fail and i said how can you be so happy if something fails he said well now you know that's not the route that you need to pursue well that's exactly what edison did right yeah right. 999 ways how not to do things and then on the ten thousand or then whatever it was he figured out how to do it so yeah, it was just one more way of him not doing something. So fear mixed, and then the part of that fear plus persistence, utilizing, because if you don't have the persistence, then you're going to go, you know, wonk, wonk, well, you know, I failed, you know, I'm done. And it's like, no, no, you're not. <laughs> so, you know, I think that giving people, you know, we talk about empowerment and those types of words, but I think it's really giving people hope. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, the mantras that I like to say is that you can do this you can do this and uh, you know then the how part of you know how you fill in those puzzle pieces of how you're going to do it but you can do this is something that uh, you know you're not going to run a marathon instantly uh, taking those one step after another after another you know that's the way that you get there well and it all leads up to the final result right absolutely yeah so tell us about a time where you got a piece of advice that you reflect back on now and say, oh my gosh, that was the best piece of advice anybody could have ever given me. Oh, there have been a few, but I think, you know, one of the things top of mind was that no doesn't mean no forever. And this was part of the sales process. I mean, it wasn't about, you know, social issues or things like that, but that, if there's a rejection in the corporate environment, you know, go back and look at your processes, look at what you're trying to accomplish. And it may be that your timing is off. Maybe you're too far ahead of the curve and not, you know, you're not where you need to be. I had an example that there was a product that Densply was looking to uh, introduce to the marketplace. And we took it before a focus group and I was behind the mirror. They couldn't see us. We could see the focus group. And I was thinking, why don't they get it? This is like, this is like the best, like, thing in the world. And the market just wasn't ready. 
So the timing part of things, you can have the best idea in the world, the best patent, the best whatever. So you've got to be really firmly implanted in your environment to take in, you know, what is the environment? What is the landscape? What are we operating? So I think that was definitely one of the things that, again, it led to opportunities instead of failures. And to then, if, if no was the answer, then looking to say, hmm, you know, what is it? What are the contributory factors to that no? And is it no forever? Probably not. Or is it no just for now? And when would you revisit and reintroduce? So that was definitely a, a great piece of advice that I got from uh, working in the corporate environment. So I'm, I'm assuming that you added that additional question to your repertoire. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Who's made the, you know, other than the dentist that kind of steered you into dentistry to begin with, who's really made the most impact on your life in your dental career? Is there any one person? Oh, absolutely. And then there, there's, there's certainly an entire army, you know, yep, like all of us. Yep. Yeah. Part of the process. But I would think the number one person has been Deanna Friedman. And Deanna is, was one of my supervisors, my boss uh, that I reported to when I was at Phillips and just an extraordinarily gifted businesswoman. I mean, she spoke five languages. She very quick uh, with um, just from a business perspective and to be able to report to someone that of that caliber and she would I, I refer to it as that she pushed me off the ledge for me to land on a higher place and just an amazing mentor and coach and again there was a safety element that I knew that if I really got into the deep weeds that she was going to be there not to bail me out but to, to to help me find myself, what are the questions I should be asking? What, what should, what discernment should I have? What my next steps should be? And having that experience with her, and that she's been CEO of several dental companies, and just an amazing, amazing woman. So I would say she would be the number one person. There were certainly dentists along the way that um, I was on the the state board of dental examiners in Maryland for six years and had the most incredible group of dentists that were mentors for me that at the time I was in my late 20s and so there was at least a 20 and 30 year age gap with the the other dentists I was the only woman the only hygienist and and again I, you know I think of people uh, like Dr. Don Brotman who was secretary of the board at the time there were others on the board that were very instrumental I would say training me in the system, looking at the whole system of things and where I could best serve in within the system and then challenge the system. And, uh, and when I was on the board, I did challenge the system. I was the only member of the board that had served on every single committee of the board and felt at that time that I wanted to be an officer of the board to serve in that capacity. Mm -hmm. And it was rather interesting because um, I had one person on the nomination committee tell me, Noel, don't embarrass yourself. You know, you're not going to win. So just don't embarrass yourself. And I said, you know, I'm taking your advisement and uh, taking it very seriously. I said, but I think that this is a way that I can serve. And so I did run in a contested election. I won by one vote. I knew I had won before they announced it because the president of the board said, apparently there's been a mistake with our election. We need to recount the votes. And so at that point I was doing the little high fives on the inside. And so, and the reason, part of the reason why it was a pushback is that it was vice president of the board and the vice president of the Maryland board was in charge of the discipline committee. And so there were people on the board that didn't like the fact that it would be a hygienist being in charge of it. And I said, I'm looking at process. I'm looking at working with the attorney general's office. I'm looking at setting up, clearing out backlogs of cases, looking at an easy way to work with the AG's office. It's not a judgment of a dentist. It's like, how can we serve the citizens of the state in an expeditious way so that there's safety? So, you know, that it was, uh, that was quite a, you know, quite a time, <laughs> but so glad that I had that opportunity and having the, uh, the board members that I served with, it was absolutely awesome. But having been on the Maryland State Board and also being a part of what was then the Northeast Regional Board of Dental Examiners, that was, you know, quite a adventure as well for over, over 20 years. I'm involved in, in both the board here in Massachusetts from a superficial level because a lot of times we have cases in front of board for the school when patients bring cases. So, 
you know, I know them and they know me much better than I ever expected. They have a tough job. They do have a tough role. And I applaud you for your service because it's not easy to be on a board where all of the men are there and you're the only hygienist. And I have no doubt that you stood your ground and and spoke up when you needed to. And I, I think that that's something that you know, everybody should understand that we can, we all have so many ways that we can participate in our, um, even if we're not holding a governmental office, ways that we can participate and become involved that is supportive of the industry and supportive of the, the profession. So absolutely. Like there's room for everyone. I mean, it's, you know, there's, that's the thing is that there are so many opportunities available for us, um, you know, some people do missions work, some people do, you know, they volunteer through their professional organizations. I mean, it just, it's dentistry is an awesome, awesome industry. It sure is in a small world. For sure. Yeah, oh, it is. <laughs> what, um, any obstacles in your life that you've had to overcome that you'd like to share with the audience? Well, I think, you know, going back to the dyslexic thing, because it impacted my confidence level, because I know growing up, First of all, I had this weird name, Noel. I wanted to be named Debbie, like every Debbie that was in my second grade class. There were seven of them. And so, you know, feeling like the oddball out and then in reading groups, I remember in, in, you know, in elementary school, I was in the brown reading group. Who wants to be in the brown reading group, you know, or the, you know, you wanted to be in the, in the pink or the blue or the blue jays or, you know, like whatever, you know, the purple, blue, you know, whatever, you know, so it's like, gosh, you know, is that, you know, or the gray. I remember I, I think I got promoted from the brown to the gray reading group and that didn't make, didn't make me feel very, you know, wonderful wonderful about that. So I think, you know, the impact of that on my self-confidence, but then later on that self-confidence in learning the compensatory skills, it's like, okay, you know what, this is a gift, not a curse. So for me, when I was teaching at Maryland, I, you know, say to the faculty as we were doing student assignments, I said, let me have the student that's having the trouble. Let me have the students that's the, the, like the weakest link. And if I can work one-on-one -on -one with that person and help them get to their best selves to the next level, then, you know, that's going to be a win. That will be a, you know, a, a true win. So I think over my career, that's probably been the biggest, uh, the biggest obstacle, but overcome wasn't easy because that confidence piece filters through everything. But then having great mentors that, you know, whispering in my ear, I could hear them say, you know, you can do this, you can do this. So one of the biggest passions in my life is showing other women. You and I touched on that a little bit ahead of time. And, and that was actually the next question. So thank you for teeing it up perfectly. <laughs> yeah. You know, in your career, you know, other than that instance in your, your life, did you ever struggle with confidence in your ability or confidence in, you know, even learning something new? Or have you always had a fairly confident disposition? So definitely different for everybody. So just curious as to how you reacted. Yeah, so I would say the confidence has grown over time that with each success to reflect back on it and go, hmm, you know, that wasn't too bad. You know, that was that was accomplished. And but but because of that compensatory behavior related to the dyslexia, I tended to do belts and suspenders. I had a backup to my backup to give me the confidence that, well, if even if I failed a little bit, I'd have something else to do. So one of the, the things that I learned from a mentor along the way, and it was that sometimes good enough is good enough. Sometimes we can over, 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 over prepare or over, you know, and it's like, you know, sometimes like our, like in our standards of good enough might be somebody else's best day in their entire life. So, you know, really trying to have, make self-observations, not judgments, but self-observations, being curious about yourself to say, okay, where does this stand? Is this, is this good enough? Not, and I don't mean to slough it to say that, that you're striving for mediocrity because it's not about mediocrity. Um, it's a, and so it's about excelling, but into that confidence level is building your confidence. So, so for me, it was definitely a ramp up. And then I think also for women in particular, you know, some women think, you know, they've got to be excellent and exceptional at everything. 
And it's like, no, find your sliver, find your sweet spot, and really then dig down deep on that sweet spot. It doesn't have to be everything. And then knowing, you know, well, if you're not an expert on something or there's something that you just, it's not your passion or you don't love it, there's a whole tribe of other women out there that would love to help you. And sometimes I think women are afraid to ask for the help because it might be a sign of, it appears to be a sign of weakness when in fact it's not. I'm so, And I'm so thrilled that, that women now are talking more about their their group of their support and being able to reach out to other people who have been there, done that. And honestly, that's like one of my favorite things to do when someone says, you know, do you have the time to, you know, hear my idea and talk to me? It's like, oh my gosh, I would love to. I mean, that is exciting for me to to do that. And I think that that never in my career have I seen the collaboration of a profession more so than I saw it in dentistry in the last six months. I mean, I just think, you know, the education was phenomenal. The sharing of data, the sharing of information across all sorts of portals was amazing. I think the ADA did an amazing job and our state organizations did an amazing job making sure that we were all safe and prepared to go back to work. So I really have never seen the likes of that in, and I, because I'm not in any other profession, I don't think I've noticed it anywhere else, but I am really proud of our profession because we just did come together and we did collaborate. So I, I am really proud of that. Yes. And I am as well. And again, it's been a, it's been a golden opportunity for us. I mean, it's been there all along, but it's taken this pandemic to kind of, I would say, pull it out and solidify it. And I think that's something that's really very important as we build into the safety aspects and the vulnerability is for all team members so that people are safe enough to say, you know, that sounds like a good idea, but have we examined this or that or, you know, whatever the situation is and, and creating that culture and that environment, regardless of where, whether you're a private practitioner or in a group practice, DSOs, academic practice, wherever. Right. Right, right. So tell me who in your life is more the most inspirational person to you? It doesn't have to be in dentistry. It, it, you know, who inspires you? Well, I have a very strong faith. And so for me, it goes back to biblical principles. And, uh, and that for me, I would say number one, my number one influencer is Jesus. And uh, everyone else are human. Um, so that, that's definitely a, the guiding principles for me. And, it's, and again, not perfection. Um, it's striving for uh, just enacting biblical principles in my life and how I treat people. Absolutely. And you can hear it in your voice. And Oh, well, thank you. You can definitely tell. Mm. Tell us one thing that people would, would be surprised to know about you. So probably if I were not a dental hygienist, they would probably be surprised that my second career, not second career, but my second choice would have been to be a Navy pilot landing, landing planes on an aircraft carrier. Whoa. Yeah. Good for you. You know, we're, we're doing quite, we have our office set up as a mobile office in our RV so we can travel cross country. And some of the RV places where we stay, there's a uh, there are airports like right next to the RV parks, and I can just stand there for hours watching these planes like land and take off and land and take off. So uh, yeah, that might be a little surprising for people. It's like okay, dental hygiene or Navy pilot? Hmm, gee, what's the connection there? Yeah, <laughs> you know, talk about getting over a fear factor, right? Every time. Those planes land on, you know, rocky seas, and I've spent a fair amount of time on a rocky sea in my life. I think to myself, God bless those boys and girls, because I'm not sure that I would have, and I, I don't know, but I'm not sure that I would have the stomach for that, because that would make me nauseous thinking about landing on something that's constantly moving. Here you are going at warp speed. Okay, you guys going to catch me? Because if you don't, I'm going right through this ship and right out the other side into the ocean. So, you know, I give them so much credit because, oh my gosh, it's got to be really difficult to learn. But, you know, they don't do it on their own. They've got an entire team to support them. But yeah, I think there's probably some adrenaline rush that's there. Um, yeah, it's like you hope that rubber band catches you and, you know, that you're not, you're not going off the drink, off the other, you know, off the other end. Um, but yeah, that, that would be kind of a, that's kind of cool. I, that is not something I expected. <laughs>
That is really cool. Have you had an aha moment when you've been either working on a patient or giving a class where you had an experience that said, oh, this is why I'm doing this? Oh, the, I can tell you, yes, over and over again, and, and especially working when I was teaching at the dental school, but it's also, it's been with doing presentations, because I do hands-on presentations as well, is that when someone says to me, oh, I get it, and it's like, yes, this is why I'm doing this, it's that, so that that transfer, it's not just a matter of transfer of information or knowledge, but can the person do the procedure more efficiently, safer, fast, you know, whatever, because of the technique or something that I showed them to do. And so that's the, that's when you know that, that kind of that, when you have that, that head heart connection and it's like, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is my purpose. This is why I'm here. So I take that sliver of information that I have related to ultrasonics, connect it with the adult learning principles and working with people, creating a safe environment so that they can learn new procedures. Because I find sometimes that, especially for experienced clinicians, that there's an embarrassment factor that they think, oh, I should have learned this in school. I should have, should have, they should all over themselves. You know, I should be able to do this. It's like, it's okay, wherever you are, I'm gonna meet you where you are. And from there, that's where our path will take, will start, is I'll meet you wherever you are. With again, with no judgment, only observation of, okay, where's the next step going to be? And so when I hear, to me, that is worth more than any paycheck of when someone says, and especially an experienced clinician, it was like, I didn't think it was going to be this easy. I really get this. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's the fun part. There is nothing better than that. How's your favorite way to manage stress? I would imagine that being in, in an RV in Montana, you can't be having too much high level of stress at this point, God willing. But oh my gosh, it's so beautiful there. I have never been, only seen pictures, but I can't wait. It's on my bucket list. Oh, oh, I've got a whole itinerary already planned for you. So you just have to tell me whether you prefer winter or summer. And so we definitely, with the RV, being able to see this beautiful country that we live in, it's just, it is so mind boggling. And just this past weekend, uh, my daughter and son-in-law were in town and we took them to what's called the Hiawatha Trail. And it is a bike trail that used to be an old railroad bed that's now been paved and graveled and it's 15 miles. It is, it's all downhill. Truly it is, it's a, it's a slight grade all yeah, downhill. but then you have to come back. No, here's the beauty. They have a shuttle bus <laughs> that takes you and your bike back up to back the top up. of the trail. Yeah. So, I mean, just the, as you go around, you know, through these dark tunnels that have no lights except for on your helmet, and you're going over these railroad trestles and just seeing the beauty of the trees and you engage with a waterfall and, you know, that's all quite beautiful. But the stress relief, what I, fa I have found is that just uh, one of the things I love to do, and this, you're going <laughs> to, you're going to probably book your ticket today, is that I love whitewater rafting. And I don't do it by myself. I mean, I have a guide, an experienced guide. Um, and there's one particular outfitter that we utilize all the time. And we go at least once a year. And so whitewater rafting is a huge stress relief. And I love just to hear the rapids coming. You can't see them because you're around the curve. It's around the curve. So you're on gentle water, but you can hear it's coming and you know it's going to happen. And, and then boom, you're around the corner and the whitewater and it's just awesome. And then the other thing is dog sledding. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So there's an outfitter here that actually not in Missoula, but, um, but just north of here that lets you draw, actually drive the team. And that is an awesome experience. So when not doing those things, riding, riding my bike or walking, I'm not, I'm not so much of a runner, but just hiking. And, and again, you see these, you're on a, on a path hiking, and then you go around a corner and an entire like Vista opens up. And then you see snow capped mountains in the background and a lake at the base of it. And um, I mean, sometimes people will say, did you Photoshop this? And it's like, no, no, this is it. So I'm telling you, anytime you're ready to come on out and you've got a place to stay, you, we can show you the ultrasonic lab so we can make it into a work trip as well. And uh, no, it's a, it's a cool place. I tried to hate it here for two years and I couldn't. I, I grew up in Baltimore. I lived there my entire life and I absolutely have fallen in love with, with the state and with the people. Uh, they give you lots of grace and space, and uh, it's been really a, a great, uh, just just a, a really great time the last five years. 
Oh, how amazing. So we have what a lot of white water rafting up in Maine where I live and doors always open as well. Kenny Bunkport is, is where I call home. And it's just the sweetest little village um, right on the water. That's just, you know, for me, it's part of my heart. It makes my heart beat. As soon as I, I went there for the first time and we spent some time there, I said, oh my God, this is where I want to be. This is where I want to be. I could feel it right away. Isn't it a great feeling? It's just like, it, like you can exhale. You can just go, ah, I've arrived. This is, and you know, I didn't know about the whitewater rafting in, in Maine. There's whitewater rafting. I didn't know that. Yeah. So we have um, a fair amount of whitewater rafting a little bit north of where I am. I'm in Southern Maine, but Maine is a big state. People don't realize how big it is, but it is a big state. And we have a lot of rapids through the different areas. And, you know, of course I I've never been, it's on my bucket list, but can't do it right now. So that's okay. At some point, I'm going to get there. Good, good. Absolutely. So you talked about a personal model earlier. Is there any other pieces of advice or mantras that you live by that you want to share? I think the biggest thing is, is the empowerment piece related to helping people grow and that you can do this. And so I, you know, I, I look back at the three corporate positions that I held and very different responsibilities in each one. Still all in the education department, but the you can do this part, it wasn't so much the education about you know, whatever the product was or about the scientific part. I mean, that was definitely the job description. But the thing that I really enjoyed the most on the you can do this was selecting people on the team by their strengths, you know, the whole Marcus Buckingham theory using using your strengths to promote what you're doing or to with your job or whatever you're doing and selecting people for the team that had different strengths but then helping those people grow and so empowering them to say you can do this you know you whatever the task at hand was my last corporate position I had about 125 people reporting to me but they were not employees and I didn't have the opportunity to help them grow. They were hired to do education programs, which Acteon has awesome products. We had great clinical trainers. So, I mean, there was nothing wrong or bad about it. Again, it was a different model, different way of, of doing things. And they were consultants, so it didn't allow the time uh, to help people grow in their position and coach them. And so, you know, I think that the you can do this, I mean, that's what a coach does. A coach sees potential. A coach sees strengths. And sometimes, you know, working with people, you could see, and I know you do this probably like a like absolutely right on point, that you'll see a student and you can see their potential far ahead of when they can see it. And to be able to help them, you know, rise up to that potential. And that's, you know, the fun part. So it, it all it all ties together with the empowerment, the confidence levels, the um, just having the, the vision of helping people to become their best selves. I agree. And I think that we as women are much more able to say, I need help, but more so than, than the young men. And I wish that everybody would say, I need help, you know, rather than suffer through because just, just opening your mouth allows somebody to put their hand out and say, here, let me show you how, right. And I don't think when, you know, if I were to never have met you in my life and you looked at me and said, I need your help. Okay. What can I do? Right. I, I don't think our human nature would allow us not to be able to respond that way. So I think the, the sooner we can learn to say, will you help me with this? Or I need help with this. I think the, the faster we can grow and the more, more skills we can develop. Absolutely. And then I think that in asking for help is if we can have clarity with what are we asking help for, that that helps the person. I mean, in dentistry, we're healers. That's who we are. And so, you know, whether it's healing, you know, a decalcified area, healing periodontal disease or whatever, we're healers. And it, and it might, might also be healing, helping that person heal and how they're learning something. But yeah, because again, with students, sometimes they get so far down the path and then it's not until they almost crash and burn that, you know, they're asking for help, whatever. Um, and part of it goes back to that embarrassment or fear or expectations or whatever, just in creating that safe environment. I know early in my career, I I think it was I failed one class in dental hygiene school. Oh, methods and materials. 
just wasn't my thing. And I failed by one point. I, I had a grade of 74. You know, uh, it was one of the best things that ever happened because then I got one-on-one -on -one tutoring with the head of the department. And so, yeah, I mean, was it embarrassing? Yeah, yeah, it was. But you just you get a good get over it. I think people need to realize that everybody's got stuff. <laughs> we all have stuff. I don't know that I've ever shared this on the podcast. So now I can share this openly. My students know this. My first set of exams when I was in dental school, now I'm 35 years old. I've been a hygienist for 15 years. It had been that long since I had gone back to school. And I took my first set of exams. I had studied really hard. Didn't come easy for me, but I had studied really hard. I failed with 40s, biochemistry and gross anatomy. And I remember going home that night and saying to my husband, I said, I've either made the worst mistake of my life or something's got to go. And so it was that moment in time when I looked at him and I said, you have got to start taking care of our daughter and I'm going to go to study. And that was it. No more dinners. I didn't clean the house. I didn't think about anything other than putting my blinders on and staying completely focused. And yes, I got through and was I the top student? Absolutely not. But I say that all the time. You do not have to be the best student. What you need to do is develop your skills and be open to learning, not close to learning. I think that's the biggest disservice that we do to ourselves is close off our mindset to be thinking that we know everything we've got. We've done that. You know, I know how to do a crown prep. I know how to do periodontal surgery. Well, what's happening that's new? And is there something new that you can learn that you can pass on to your patients or other dentists that, you know, kind of excites you to get back in the game again, you know? Well, and I think having colleagues that you trust, that someone can tell you if you're starting to veer off the path a little bit and say, you know, have you considered doing X, Y, or Z? I mean, there's a, I have a, a group of trusted women friends that I've known for a long time that if one of us starts to just veer off a little bit, like we're off our game, the first question is, are you okay? Then after that, once we know we're okay, then it's like, okay, knock it off. Stop doing that because it's not really helping you or anybody else. It may be a word choice. It may be a voice inflection. It may be, you know, something. But I think building that trusted friends that know, like, and trust you, that that is a huge thing to build over your career so that regardless of where life takes you, because life can take you to some pretty weirdo places, um, that you can still have a foundation of friends that can tell you when you're having an ugly day. It's like, you know, no, Noel, don't wear that. <laughs> you know, just, <laughs> you gotta have a friend who's... Kind friends. Yeah, right, yeah. They deliver the message in the nicest of ways of like, no, don't do that. <laughs> Go back in your closet, will you? Yeah, right, yeah, right, right. Start the day over, dear. Exactly, exactly. Either that or go to bed and wake up in a better mood tomorrow, will you please? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Do you have any secret dreams that you'd like to share with the audience? Something that's been on your bucket list? Oh, the bucket list. Well, I told you about the Navy pilot thing. And I have to say, I'm not going to be, do I'm not going to be doing that, by the way. Um, that's, I think that um, that's not going to happen. So, you know, I'm each day I'm living my dreams. So if there's something that I set my, I mean, I do want to write a book. I want to write two books actually. And one uh, related to just things that have happened over my life and lessons learned and because I've been in a very much of, a, of an introspective, reflective period, I was um, co-guardian for my brain-injured brother for 23 years. And I learned a lot from him. I learned a tremendous amount. And so that would be one, one of those books. And then the other is that I would really like to write a book on related to ultrasonics and the two uh, technologies, Magneto and Piezo, and to straighten out a lot of the myths that are out there. Mm -hmm. I hear speakers that are very well-intentioned speakers that are giving misinformation, and I would like to use scientific evidence to document you know, what is actually happening. And so there would be like two things that I, I want to pursue. I have the outlines for both of them. Now you just got to start putting it together. Well, and I think that's when the beauty, I said I would never own an RV. First of all, a bunch of, you know, blue haired people that, you know, gas guzzling machines. I'm never, and I'm never going to drive cross country, all this never, never, never stuff. I have learned to not, to not put things on my never list because 
here I am an RV driving cross country, but I think there'll be some times, reflective times as driving cross country to work on and some of those things a little bit more. But yeah, I've just, uh, I've been incredibly blessed in my entire career and it's been varied and different. I mean, part of it's been academics, part of it's been corporate, part of private practice. The hospital thing was really cool. And then I took a detour for it. I didn't mention this to you. We were talking before. I, I took a detour where I kind of got tired of people. And I'm a, an introvert, even though I masquerade as an extrovert. And so I got into veterinary and I, I did veterinary tech training and uh, did that for a while. So I just find things fascinating. And so, you know, I know that over the next 10, 15, probably 10, 15 years, I'll still find more things fascinating, and specifically in dentistry. Well, there's so much happening right now. I see the robotics coming. I see the AI coming. I'm a little bit concerned about what AI is going to be used for, especially in the hands of some of our insurance companies. But there's nothing we can do about that. So, you know, we've got to learn how to manage as we move forward. But there is some, I mean, you know, robotic implant placement. I mean, just amazing what some of the things that, that are happening. Even three-dimensional simulators to help students understand how to use their hands and where their hands are going in a patient's mouth. I can't believe how real they were. I used one at UConn recently this year and I sat down and I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. It was like really working in somebody's mouth. So I think that a lot of the academic institution, the way we know it today is going to change drastically in the next 25 years. And I think that, you know, if we don't, um, if some of the stodgy, you know, old universities don't get their act together and start pivoting now and, and becoming a little bit more nimble, they're going to unfortunately be left behind because it's coming. But, and I think too, again, going back to the whole pandemic thing, it's, it's going to open an opportunity where before maybe the you know, stoic academicians might say, well, we don't need this. Well, well guess what? You, now you have something to motivate you that and related to virtual education and that you're not going to have that traditional perhaps live hands-on kind of thing so that's i mean it is very exciting in fact my daughter just this weekend she said hey you know mom do you think that they'll ever have a robot that would actually be able to scale someone's teeth and i went i said you know that's rather interesting i said i've, I've got to think about through all the comp the component parts to what that would take i said but wow didn't even have that thought cross my mind but why not you know it, it's sure Exactly. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed getting to know you, Noel. I mean, this has been a great hour. So thank you so much for your time and for visiting with all of us. And, you know, I know that, that you will get back on the road soon. I know still a lot is being done virtually, but um, I do, you know, know that all of us are anxious to get back together. I, I happened to talk to Vanessa today and, and you know, she is going to have a hybrid event. So I'm going to plan to attend, I hope. And, you know, just, you know, get back to seeing each other and collaborating again. So I look forward to the next time. It has absolutely been my pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation to join you today. And I just think that we're going to do great things together. I absolutely love it. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Women in Dentistry podcast with Dr. MJ Hanlon. If you like our show and want to know more about us, check out our website, thewomenindentistry.com, or please leave us a review on iTunes. Join us for our next episode as we bring you another amazing woman leading the way for the next generation.